Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Eric Weiner, the author of many popular philosophy books, to discuss what philosophy can teach us in the age of COVID-19. From Confucius to Rousseau, he discussed how philosophers can help us cope and put into perspective this tumultuous year. It's a fascinating conversation, and it was hosted by Danielle Sands, the academic and writer. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Eric's book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Danielle Sands. Today we're going to be discussing philosophy in the time of COVID-19 and I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Eric Weiner. Eric is an award-winning journalist and the author of The Geography of Bliss, The Geography of Genius and most recently, The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. Focusing on 14 different historical thinkers and interspersed with descriptions of the author's train journeys across the world, the Socrates Express is an invitation to engage with different perspectives and to find pockets of wisdom as we navigate uncertainty. We are living in a very uncertain and challenging time. Why is philosophy important during the current pandemic, Eric? Good question, Danielle, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Because philosophers have been through what we are going through and actually much worse. You know, there was a outbreak of plague in Athens when Socrates was doing his philosophizing. The Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius had to deal with the plague as well, as did Michel de Montaigne, who escaped the city of Bordeaux in southern France, uh, where he was mayor, to go up to his tower and to think some very deep thoughts. So, We like to think and we like to say, oh, we're living in unprecedented times. Well, the truth is we're not. And the truth is that there's a lot of wisdom out there to be found in philosophy, which can help us navigate these dark days. Thank you. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when I was reading your book was your focus on philosophy as an embodied practice, not just the work of the mind. Right. And your emphasis on the ways that that philosophy can help us to understand sort of lived physical experience. And this seems really, really important now when the pandemic has, has made us think really strongly about the vulnerability of our bodies and the fragility of our health. What, what do you think philosophers can teach us about this? Well, you're absolutely right. And this was one of the things that actually surprised me as I dive deep into the topic, you know, because I, like many people, I thought philosophers were like these you know, tiny bodies with these huge heads walking around that almost toppled them over because they were always filled with such deep thoughts. And they did think deep thoughts, but they were also very kinetic and very physical. You know, René Descartes, the French philosopher, was a, was a fencer. Many of them took long walks to do their thinking. Henry David Thoreau and Rousseau, the Swiss philosopher, he would carry a deck of playing cards with them whenever he went on these epic 10 or 20 mile walks and jot down thoughts as they came to him. And really, there is a, a school of thought in philosophy, philosophy of the body, essentially, that argues that this whole distinction that we make, especially in the West, between mind and body is a false dichotomy. And I believe it was Nietzsche, the French German philosopher, who famously said that there's more philosophy in your body than in all of your deep thoughts. And there's, I think there's great, great tooth, truth to that. There is wisdom in the body. Thank you. I suppose I'm particularly interested in what philosophy can teach us about 
the limitations of bodies or failing bodies. I mean, in, in the book, you talk to, you, you refer to Simone de Beauvoir when, when you're thinking about aging. You, you turn to Montaigne when you're thinking about death. Are these the thinkers we should be reading right now when we are, you know, examining the limitations of our bodies and, and uh, the inevitability of mortality? Yes, we should, because they wrestled out loud on the page with, with these issues, and it took them a while to get there. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir is best known, of course, as a feminist thinker, author of The Second Sex, but she also wrote an equally thick book called, in English at least, The Coming of Age, about growing old, and it's mostly pretty pessimistic. She she saw old age as this sort of, you, you lose abilities and you kind of whittle away, but she came around, I think, slowly and more actually in her life than on the page to this acceptance of aging. And she thought you could still be politically active. She was more active in her 70s than she was in her 20s. And Montaigne also wrestled with death. He feared it. I mean, I fear it too, I have to be honest. And it was just sort of comforting and reassuring to see this wise person from 500 years ago wrestling with a lot of the questions about his imperfect body, um, pieces falling off, he suffered from painful kidney stones. And, and ultimately, Danielle, I think where all these philosophers end up is in a place of what I like to call radical acceptance. It's this notion that ultimately we have to accept the way things are and not the way we wish them to be. It's actually a very Buddhist idea, but I see that thread running through a lot of these philosophers sort of epitomized by Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrence. Imagine your life, Danielle, repeats itself exactly over and over again for all of eternity. And you're probably thinking, even this year, 2020? And Nietzsche would say, yes, even 2020. <laughs> and then he would ask you, do you, Danielle, want to re do you want to repeat this life with no editing? You can't have your your really clever editor at Intelligence Squared edit out the year 2020 or seventh grade or whatever traumatic experience you've had. You've got to embrace the whole thing, the whole enchilada, as we say over here. It does sound like quite a terrifying prospect, to be honest, particularly if we take 2020 as an example. Right. And that is why Nietzsche and all these philosophers, they're, they're not easy. This is not like easy self-help this is not pop psychology. This is not feel-good aphorisms. A lot of it's hard, but I, I think it's right. I think it's true. I think when we when we have some distance from this god-awful year 2020, I think we might look back on it and say, you know, I wouldn't want to, you know, every year to be like 2020, but it was all, you know, a piece of the whole cloth of our lives. And, it, and we can't just cut out pieces willy-nilly. We, we have to learn to accept the whole thing. One chapter that I find particularly interesting, and I guess particularly pressing at the current moment, was the chapter on Simone Weil and on paying attention. Right. So you say, the quality of our attention determines the quality of our lives. And I thought this was particularly resonant because we're living in an age of distractions. We're constantly picking up our phones, checking our emails. Attention seems to be exactly what we don't have. Why is attention so important? Because it was actually the American philosopher William James who said, basically, you are what you choose to pay attention to. And Simone Weil picked up that thread a few decades later. You are what you pay attention to. 
the net total of your life. It's, it's the sum of these moments of attention or inattention. And Simone Weil had a very unique, I would say, take on, on what attention is. She thought it was actually a form of love and that they were virtually indistinguishable, that attention is love and love is attention. And actually, the, the worst thing you could do to someone is to give them your time, but not your attention. And children are acutely aware of this. They know if an adult is spending time with them, but not paying attention to them, they can sense it in their body and in their being. And Simone Weil also thought that attention was very different from concentration. And we tend to use the two words interchangeably. If we want to pay attention, like if I were to say, Daniel, pay attention to my words and what I'm saying, you, I think, would instinctively sort of tense up and furrow your brow and really have this muscular effort. Oh, I must pay attention to what this guy is saying. Simone Weil thought that was wrong-headed. She thought, really, attention is more of a passive act in the, se- in, the, in the sense that you're receptive to something entering your consciousness, and you're actually expanding your awareness and not narrowing it to a pinpoint. And she wrote beautifully about it and died way too young, as many of these philosophers did, and died not too far from where you are right now in Kent, in um, Ashford, uh, and is buried in Ashford Cemetery. I mean, I was wondering whether whether you thought that the pandemic has given some of us at least more opportunity for paying attention as our lives have, have shrunk in, in very obvious physical ways. I think it has. There's a, a quote I like from a French philosopher, Maurice Reisling, who said, sooner or later, life makes philosophers of us all. And I think the pandemic has made philosophers of, of us all. You know, welcome to sooner. We are acutely aware of how our in some ways, our world has shrunk, as you suggest, to the four walls of our house for most of the day. And I think we, we had two reactions. First is we resisted. You know, we, we got, at least I'm speaking personally here, I got very restless. I couldn't read. I could just binge watch on Netflix or TV shows. But as the pandemic went on, I, I did become more pensive and more contemplative and began to pay attention to the small And I confess, I've never paid much attention to the small things in life. I've been a big idea, big thought, big portions at restaurants kind of person. (laughs) Everything's got to be big, big, big. And there are a few philosophers in my book, in particular the Japanese thinker Seishonagan, who really had a deep and abiding appreciation of the beauty of the small. And that's something you still see in Japan today. And I think all of us have learn to enlarge some aspects of our lives, our our interior lives, even as many other aspects of our lives have shrunk. Thanks, that's helpful. I mean, I wonder, this this is a book about travel as much as a book about philosophy in some ways. And I wonder how you feel about that in, in the context where you've been unable to travel. Has it made it harder for you to think? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, it it has in that I am a place person, and I always need to attach an idea to a place. I I need to ground the idea. And that was the purpose of me taking these series of train rides across the U.S., across Europe, across India, and visiting the places where these philosophers did their thinking, because it, it grounded the ideas and kept them from sort of floating off into the ether. 
And right now I cannot travel and I've been forced to sit still. And as I said, I resisted at first, but I'm, I'm coming around to the notion that, you know, I don't want to get too, I, I was going to say, I don't want to get too philosophical, but we're talking about philosophy. So I do want to get too philosophical. I, I've learned, I'm learning that perhaps the universe is trying to tell me something that I, I need to be able to think without moving. And that really the whole point of travel is not to see places and to take great snapshots and put them up on Instagram. The whole point of travel, in my mind, is what the American writer Henry Miller said. He said, one's destination is never a place, but a new way of looking at things. I think that's absolutely true for travel. And I would add, it's absolutely true for philosophy as well. The whole point is not to accumulate knowledge, but to look at the world and to look at yourself just slightly differently. I think this distinction between knowledge and wisdom is something that you keep returning to in the book. And I want to press you a little bit more on the idea of, I guess, self-knowledge and self-understanding. This comes up particularly in the, the chapter on Socrates, when you're thinking about the nature of questioning and the nature of our yearning for better understanding of ourselves. And it strikes me that I guess one of the things that's happened to us or lots of us in the pandemic, is that we've spent more time on our own. I wonder whether, you know, Socrates can help us here in terms of using that time fruitfully in order to dialogue with ourselves and, and I guess, think ourselves into self-knowledge. Okay, that's a, a lot there to tackle, but I will tackle it. Um, let's let's start with the, this distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And I would say even between information and knowledge. And we tend to just blur them all together. I think we, even if we don't say this out loud, we believe that if we're not happy or we're not successful or whatever is lacking in our lives, it's due to a lack of information. And we believe that more information equals more knowledge and more knowledge equals just, just better. It's always better to know. And that's not uh, what Socrates believed. He made a clear distinction between just gathering information and truly knowing something. And while, you know, technology today gives us unprecedented access to incredible amounts of information and yes, knowledge on your smartphone, which I bet is probably, you know, a few inches away from you right now, you could grab it and you could swipe it and you can find out about everything from ancient the ancient Egyptians to theoretical physics. But Socrates would argue that doesn't give you any true knowledge. It doesn't give you true knowledge about the nature of the universe, yes, but what he was really interested in was, as you say, self-knowledge. It doesn't really help you know Danielle. You're just, in fact, he would argue it is confusing you and making you less likely to know Danielle because you're cluttering your mind with information and you're confusing it. And Socrates thought, yes, you use the word, I think, self-interrogation. And that's what he was all about, that we need to question our assumptions. We just sort of, it's like we've set the GPS in our car to a certain de direction, and we don't know why we're going to this place, but we're following the GPS, and we're acting as if we have no control over the GPS. We can't reroute ourselves. And Socrates says, whoa, why are you going to this place? Um, why are you taking this route? Did someone tell you? Is this your idea or not? And I realize that makes it really hard to get to the local grocery store to get a pint of milk, perhaps, if you're always questioning where you're going. But 
we need to do it now and then. We need to sort of recalibrate our internal GPS and figure out what, what is it we're striving for and why are we striving for it? Thank you. I want to come back to this this point you made earlier about perspective and the importance of diversifying our perspectives. That, to me, is the real goldmine of philosophy. I think of philosophy not as sort of on par with science as a way to ascertain ultimate truths, but actually more like literature, reading a good novel. And if you've read a good novel and then you put it down, uh, you're a little bit sad that it's ended. And also, the novel will stay with you. And you will walk down the high street or wherever you are and see things a little bit differently. Colors might be more vibrant, or you'll you'll notice things you didn't notice before. And to me, that's the role of philosophy. What's It's been called life-enhancing poetry, and I think that's what it is at its best. And I think one of the masters of this was Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, who's sort of best known as doing this somewhat kooky uh, experiment in Walden Pond in our state of Massachusetts here, where he lived on the pond. But really, if you read his journals and you read when he's really honest with himself, he was really about changing perspective. And so he would look at this pond, something he saw every day from a different perspective, from on a hilltop, he'd go out on a rowboat on the pond, he'd dive underwater, and he would even occasionally turn his head upside down, peer between his legs, and look at the pond upside down. I tried this, by the way, and the blood rushed to my head and I nearly passed out. So it doesn't work for me, but it worked for him. And the point was that if we change our perspective just a little little bit, we will see beauty that was there all along. Look at your bookshelf behind you a little bit differently. You might notice a book that's been sitting there for 20 years that you haven't gotten around to reading or the way the white the light glints off, off of a lamp or whatever it is. It can be the smallest thing. It can be the biggest thing. But we sort of, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit, we humans, and we need to jolt ourselves out of that habit in order to literally see things. I mean, not see them more vividly necessarily, but literally to notice them. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. One of the things that, that caught my attention when you were talking about different perspectives in the book was the sense that some of these might not be compatible with each other. How do we negotiate between all of these different positions? Hmm. I mean, I, I think yeah. 
The study of philosophy in the university, I think, unfortunately, has focused on distinctions and differences, you know, compare Hegel and Kierkegaard and their approach to romanticism or whatever it is, and less on commonalities. And I, to be honest, as I dove deep into these philosophies and these philosophers and their lives, I, I find commonalities. And you don't have to agree with all of them. And I think this is the beauty of uh, philosophy, unlike, say, religion or politics. You know, you have to choose a religion, choose a political party. In philosophy, I think you can construct your own personal philosophy, cobble it together. I call it sort of the IKEA philosophy, some assembly required. You bolt it together, you take a little bit of Nietzsche, a little bit of Schopenhauer, just just a dash. He was pretty pessimistic. You take some Montaigne, you find the commonalities. And if it works for you, and it helps you see more clearly, live more fully, then, you know, in the words, words of William James, truth is what works. And by that, he doesn't mean you can go around saying two plus two equals five. You can't do that. But, you know, if a way of seeing the world is working for you, then that is true for you. And I realize it's a tricky concept, subjective truth, but there is such a thing as subjective truth. Thank you. When I when I got to the end of the book, which ends with, with Montaigne, uh, it made me wonder about who was missed out. There must have been, you must have had huh. a very long list to yes. start off with. How did you know? To, which you eventually <laughs> whittled down to 14. Um, who didn't make the cut? Oh, boy. Well, Aristotle's not there because he was too head-heavy for my liking, although he contributed a lot. And the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. You know, I, I took I took the train from Athens all the way to Copenhagen. It takes several days. I spent several weeks in Copenhagen. I read him. I met with Kierkegaardians. I walked in his footsteps, and I, I just couldn't get him, you know, and... And I was sitting down with my editor saying, basically, what do we do about Kierkegaard? And my editor said, kill him. I'm like, kill him? He's like, yeah, just kill him. So that's the beauty of writing a book is you can uh, you can kill off the philosophers who aren't working so for you. So he's haunting the text somewhere. He is. And and I, I feel I had this guilt, which I'm sure he would have something to say about. But I just, I couldn't, you know, each one of the chapters in my book is is a how-to question, how to wonder like Socrates, how to see like Thoreau, how to die like Montaigne. I couldn't wrap my mind around a how-to for Kierkegaard, how to take a leap of faith, I suppose, or I, I couldn't quite condense him to this essence of a how-to question. I, I will get back to him at some point. I feel, I'm feeling tremendous guilt over the execution of Soren Kierkegaard. <laughs> What about living philosophers? Why why did it focus? Why does the book focus on dead philosophers? Were you not oh, the, the dead tempted ones are, by the any dead living ones? The dead ones are the best. I mean, first of all, they cannot write nasty emails to you saying, on page 247, you mischaracterized my ideas entirely. Doesn't happen with dead philosophers. Um, also, you know, philosophy is like wine. They're good years and they're bad years. But in general, the older, the better in the sense that it's had time to to ferment, it's had time to age, it's had time to be tested, you know, and, and that is the difference between wisdom and technology. You know, we don't want to use the ancient technology or pharmacology of the ancient Greeks. That's a bad idea. 
but the wisdom actually holds up very well over time. And I, I should say, I'm being a little bit cute about this, I realize, but there are some absolutely wonderful contemporary philosophers. Martha Nussbaum, the University of Chicago, jumps to mind, and others there in the UK. But sadly, they don't have the notoriety of a Socrates or a Simone de Beauvoir, because I think we just we don't really honor philosophy and philosophers today the way we used to and the way I think we should. I mean, I, I don't know who... If someone writes a book like mine 300 years from now, and it's about dead philosophers, will it include contemporaries of today? I hope it does. In the introduction to the book, you talk about a persistent melancholy that led you to philosophy. I guess I, I wondered whether, the, whether philosophy cured that melancholy or whether it gave you companionship in your melancholy or whether it made you reflect differently on it. Yes, is the answer. Um, a little bit of, of all of that. It, it, it cured me in the sense that some of these practices, and they are practices, Stoics, for instance, um, they, they really, there are Stoic meditations and Stoic practices that you can do. Stoicism is the basis for modern cognitive behavioral therapy. So some of these philosophies had a very direct effect on not curing my melancholy, but making me less depressed, I would say. Also, the companionship of knowing that these great thinkers also suffered. And we haven't really talked about how weird they were, but they were pretty pretty kinky, a lot of them. I mean, Rousseau would expose his buttocks in public to strangers. This, you know, this was problematic for him. Schopenhauer talked to his poodle. So I felt like, oh, you know, they're a bit like me. I mean, not that I do those exact things, but, you know, I've got my peccadillos. And there was a third element. I forget. There was it. Did it cure? Did it give me companionship? What was the third part of that question? I want to get back to that. Did it help you reflect on it? Yeah, and that's probably the biggest thing. Is it? You know, I've written about happiness before in in previous books, and as I grow older, I'm I'm coming to the conclusion that happiness is really not the El Dorado, the Nirvana that we all really should be seeking. It's not a happy life that we crave. It's a meaningful life. And philosophy is very good about at putting happiness in perspective. Philosophers have written about happiness, discussed it, but really what it comes down to is living a meaningful life. And a meaningful life invariably contains an element of melancholy. You know, I once was in Iceland where I met a, a slight ascended composer named Hilmar, hugely successful um, composer, was a mentor to Bjork, the singer. And we were sitting down for coffee. And I'm like, Hilmar, you, you seem very successful and very artistic, but you also seem happy. And he said, well, I, I am basically happy, but I cherish my melancholia. And I thought that was very wise and very philosophical. And I think most of the philosophers in my book would agree with that. They would not want to eradicate all melancholy from their life. That, in fact, it is that innate sadness that drives their philosophical contemplations, you know, from one, one station stop to another. It's the engine. I think that brings us back to the, the lessons of the book's title. You know, anyone coming to the, the book expecting a sort of how-to list, you know, 10 bullet points of, of how to live, I think is going to be a little bit frustrated. One of the things the book does really well is it makes us think again about what we understand by learning and what we understand 
by lessons that we don't get this sort of formulaic list. What, what we get in the final chapter actually is a, a list of irresolvable paradoxes. Can you say a little bit about what you hope readers will get from the book? I hope that they, like the American writer Henry Miller, will put the book down and see the world a bit differently. That they will ask a question or two or three that they never asked before. That they will see something or hear something or think something that they didn't think before. And you raise an interesting point about the, how we learn. And reading philosophy is not doing philosophy. It's reading philosophy. Doing philosophy is something you have to, unfortunately, do on your own. And Arthur Schopenhauer, the 19th century German philosopher, he's writing in the 1840s, 1850s, and he basically warns about the dangers of Google and the internet 150 years before its invention, saying that any idea you learn in a book is not really yours, that you need to put the book down and work it out for yourself. In other words, don't just Google the answer. Now, I realize I probably just talked a lot of people out of reading my book. That's not the purpose. <laughs> yes, read my book, but put it down. We need to arrive at these, not just at these answers, but at these questions, these deeper questions on our own. And really, the one book that you should never put down is your is your notebook, your blank notebook, where you jot down your thoughts and your questions. But no, you're not going to read my book and put it down and instantly be like crazy happy and wealthier and all these things. It will not do that for you. I'm going to just be upfront about that. But hopefully it will make you think and see the world a bit differently. Thank you. And one final question. If you had to pick one of your 14 thinkers to recommend to our listeners to read right now in this pandemic moment, who would it be and why? Oh, boy. I'm going to go with Montaigne, Michel de Montaigne. And his chapter is How to Die Like Montaigne, but he was more than that. He he lived, was doing his thinking and writing during a pandemic, bubonic plague, and he wrote these essays. He invented the whole genre of essays. And what I like about Montaigne is that he starts by quoting lots of ancients from Greek and Roman times. And you can see the insecurity on the page. You can smell the insecurity, this whiff of, I'm not quite good enough to be on the level with Socrates and Aristotle and, and all these great thinkers. But as he goes on, and he goes on for many, many hundreds of pages in his essays, he gets more confident in his own voice. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this all happened basically in solitude up in his tower during the during an outbreak of bubonic plague. And that's why I think he's he's the philosopher for our time. He's sort of ended the conversation with the world, which he enjoyed having, and he began a conversation with himself. And and I hope all of us are able to stop and sit and and have a real a real conversation with ourselves. Thank you for the tip. Unfortunately, we have now run out of time. Thank you very much, Eric, for such a, a thrilling and reflective discussion. My name is Danielle Sands, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.